0: welcome to the rocks back pages podcast my name is barney hoskins i'm here with my colleague mark pringle hi barney hello mark we will be talking (laughs) later about elbow we will be hearing clips from the week's audio interview which is with Ginger Baker and we will in general be talking about everything that's new on Rocksback Pages this week we will also be talking about and with David Hepworth welcome
1: hello nice to be in your cupboard
0: (laughs) (laughs) the cupboard welcomes you (laughs) yes David Hepworth live
1: from the Rocksback Pages cupboard. Um, it's, a, it's a great <laughs> all pleasure. All the best to... things are done in cupboards. There's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> I, I, I think <laughs> i still... Perhaps we'd better not go all down All the best podcasts road. are done in cupboards. All oh, best Seriously. podcasts. They're not doing no, 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 they're no, done in no. posh studios. they're done in cupboards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's lovely to have you in the cupboard. Welcome. Surrounded by your
2: history as a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Many of the magazines oh, that, you, that you've written for... The ill-advised speeches. <laughs> <laughs>
0: David, I mean, we're going to talk about your long career, long and (laughs) illustrious career as a writer, as an editor, as a publisher. And now as a best-selling author, hey. uh, which is, I mean, <laughs> wow! This has been a sort of late-blooming new iteration of the David Hepworth <laughs> that many of us have known for decades. And you know, congratulations Thank on the success. Much. I mean, you're How now kind. you're now not just an author; you're a brand, which I think is very clever. Uh, you have got all
1: your purely by episodes. accident. I have to tell you,
0: what was the accident?
1: No, I well, the the branding issue. You know, I've got a number of books which all kind of have look similar yeah. on the outside. You know, started out with a book about 1971. Yep. And, you know, mostly really, I've got a book coming out. Just I'm holding soon, it in my called hand. Called The Rock Rock Level, which is a kind of quiz book, which is also the same kind of livery. And the reason that happened is that the first book I had very much a hand in the designing the look of being a magazine person? Yeah, yeah exactly. You do, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have an unfair advantage. You absolutely. a <laughs> publisher, no, that's the most important thing. I want to be involved in that. I will bore the designer, you know, to tears about how it's got to be this picture, not that picture, and they were very pleased with it. Yeah. And then when it came to time to do the second book, Uncommon People: The Rise and Fall of the Rock Stars. They kind of, you know, sketched it out with yeah. a different colour. It was blue. It, was, it looked similar, but it was blue. And I said, look, based on my experience, and pretty much my experience with Q, because if you remember, the first issue of Q was a white logo on a red patch. This was McCartney on the cover, yes. wasn't it? Yes, yeah. and then the second one, I think the second one, was uh, white uh, Q on a blue patch. Oh. And uh, and then it was white on a yellow and white on a green and white. And after a while, we, Mark, Ellen and myself yes. and Andy Cowles, the art director, said, yes. there's no point changing it. Just use the most powerful one, which yeah. is white on red. Yes. And so I said to the publisher, how about you just make it so it's recognizably the same family rather than doing something that is different but not as good? And they looked at me like, wow, that's revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may have
2: revolution. Well, revolutionary. And they've,
1: they've been really pleased with it yes. the, the ever since. But, so it's
2: just based on but my experience. absolutely absolute following in the footsteps of the classic Penguin books, which is exactly the same thing. Same. There's a real case for that. I yeah. That's about, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Deb, we'll be talking about the new book, The Rock and Roll A Level, subtitled A Very Hard Pop Quiz.
2: I got the first one right, and then it's down Downhill I think working. what we're going
0: to do is we're going to ask you some of the questions oh, right. and <laughs> make uh, damn sure you know the answers. One, but yeah. we'll look forward to talking about this in a moment. I wanted to go really back to the beginning of your story. I also think some things that I be interested to know like, how you first met Mark Allen, but you grew up in Yorkshire, and yeah, came yeah. To, you came to London at a certain point? I, I came to, to London at the do. age
1: of 18 as soon as I possibly could. You to know, become I, a member of the Matchbox yeah, Elite? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Successfully. I, <laughs> you know, laughably, I was one of those people who sort of thought they wanted to be an actor when I was about 17 years oh. old. And my parents, being like everybody's parents at the time, said, I'll tell you what, don't do that. Go and be a teacher <laughs> instead. So I went and... and Yes. Studied to be a teacher. I taught for a year, but really that wasn't what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was be near records. So I, <laughs> I got a job in the H and V shop in Oxford Street and worked there for about three years. And during that time, Fred Deller used to come in from the enemy to do the imports column for the enemy, Right. And Fred, lovely guy. Lovely And Fred was the kind of guy, unlike most rock journalists, <laughs> that you would, sorry, air quotes, rock <laughs> journalists. Yeah. Um, Fred, very approachable chap, yeah. you know. And so I said to Fred, Fred, if I wrote something, yeah. would you read it? And so I wrote something. He said, yes, of course, I wrote it, and he read it. He said, yeah, no, it's quite good. And then next I said, if I did, do you think get anything published in the NME, which was just my wildest dreams, you know. It's so, a well, you never know. And so I wrote something, and he put me in touch with Bob Woffinden, who at the time was a reviews editor. Yeah. This would be about 1975, I suppose, mm-hmm. something, something like that. And so I started contributing little reviews I was really way down the totem pole you know, as you can imagine you know. well we all have to absolutely you know, the to... enemy had a hierarchy that you know would okay. have been recognisable to courtiers at Versailles <laughs> and, you know. uh, and, um, and you know started doing that you know so I was doing it as a bit of a sideline while working in a record shop and then I wanted to work for a small record company I worked for Berserk.
3: Berserkly yeah
1: that's a yeah. good start as a, yeah. as a, which taught me a lot uh, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And then when I I kind of jacked that in, I thought, I'm going to try and do this full time. And there was no workaround. And I thought, I rang Fred again. Wow. I said, Fred, do you know any workaround? And Fred, being the sweetest man alive, Mm. said, Nick Logan's just started this magazine called Smash Hits. Wow. And he could do with some help. So I rang Nick. And Nick pretty much said, can you come in tomorrow? (laughs) You know, because he started this thing, it was done two monthly issues or whatever. Yeah, it was yeah. just going great guns, and he needed people to help write it and put it yeah. together. And so I, I pretty much went in there and never left. And that's where you met Mark Ellen. I know, uh, I kind of met, met Mark him. before while uh, working he for, the for the record company, didn't he? Yeah, I'd worked for, I'd, i met him while working for Berserkli Records. I, uh, he, he, he was a remembers. Jonathan Richmond fan. No, we saying? met at a terrible earthquake gig in <laughs> Salford Poly, and I think it was 1976 or something like that. <laughs> you can't make it up. And can you? It was just terrible. <laughs> yeah. Even though I thought it was terrible, and I was a guy from the record company. And Mark Ellen characteristically was going, That was amazing! Amazing! <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that's where I met him. And then I kind of, you know, rejoined. When he joined, he was a contributor to Smash yeah. Hits. And then when I became I, editor, he, he became number two there, kind of thing.
2: Obviously, working for Smash Hits, working for Nick Logan, you were working with and for one of the great editors and editorslash yeah. publishers of okay. that age. That must have been amazing training for you, seeing him in action as an editor. As it, was, it was. I kind of mistakenly thought everybody was like Nick, <laughs> I, I subsequently
1: learned that they weren't at all. But what I learned with Nick was that you, your job of the editor is to stand over the layout Smoking tons of cigarettes, yeah, as we yeah. did in those days, yeah, yeah. and decide how it was going to look and how it was going to play and yeah. how it was going to communicate yeah, yeah. and what the headline was and what the captions were yeah. and all those things were massively important, you know, yeah. a hugely important kind of craft skills, yeah. which yeah. he passed on. Yeah, Sure, you know, and that was the thing that that was the secret ingredient of Smash Hits, which was then
2: taken into queue. Yes, yeah. absolutely, very much the same. I mean, thing. That, that was the answer to my question. Yeah. Was the question, but. I mean for me, I, I didn't read Smash Hits at the time because I was an NME snob, you know, was, you know, Smash Hits was for kids. Now in my job, one of the joys is going through like the first four, five years of Smash Hits because it's just so funny. You've got people like Neil Tennant writing some of the funniest copy you'll sort of see <laughs> anywhere. No one is taken seriously. And for me, that's just... Apparent. Well, I'll tell you what, I've
1: got a WhatsApp group. With Mark Allen and Barry Mackelhenny, so yeah, yeah. three former to Smash Hits, and we regularly communicate. And the most recently was when Sam Smith announced that henceforth he wished to refer to as as vague because yes, because yes, yes. gender yeah. issues. Yeah, yeah. And and I just said to Barry and Mark, "How do you deal with this? <laughs> if you're Smash Hits, you don't you know, seriously, absolutely, seriously, yeah? Because the whole deal with Smash Hits was that you kind of." The whole attitude smash smashes as pop stars. They're a rumbler, talk, You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And he was quite sympathetic. It yeah. wasn't unkind yeah, about yeah, anybody. Yeah. But it was like, now that's yeah. weird. You yeah, know, yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> well, now you can't, you can't say do that Because you will offend you will offend Because it, so it's people. a serious
2: yep. gender issue, and isn't that, it? Is. Rather than that, kind of, oh, that's that's wacky wacky. The other thing that struck me looking at it <laughs> is how broad the, the variety of types of acts... Oh, about. I mean, you get, like, you know, the angelic upstarts. There was nobody who was not in Smash Bros. Yeah, I know. It's, it was Nobody. Not, I mean, again, that would be impossible now. Now everything's been salami sliced into its sort of... Yeah, you know, well, I think what happens is that with all
1: successful music titles mm-hmm. back in the day, which is that you start out trying to appeal to everybody you can... And then you find hotspots. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of reverse engineer yep. to favour the hotspots. Yes, yes. And so whatever it has an inclination to become, mm. it is exclusively, it becomes exclusively that y- thing. Y- yeah, you yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because by then you've got competitors exactly. who are making it more difficult for
0: yes. you to move around. Well, the second piece that we've selected to feature you on the homepage this week is an interview with Ian Geary and Wilco Johnson, which you know, in a in a way, one would be surprised to find those those two veterans of the sort of pub rock scene in Smash Hits in nineteen eighty. But there was room for everything. As you said, there were pieces like the Angelic Ops. And everyone them, was in there. But also, yeah.
1: well, also people yeah. like Ian Dury loved Smash Hits. Yeah. yeah, of course. He of course. he appreciated the value of Smash Hits. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the pieces I think I wrote this for Smash Hits uh, around about the time of Reasons to be cheerful which is his great listing of everybody he kind of admires. And I just sat on a bus with him, going up to Sheffield, I think, and said, right, let's just go through the lyrics. Tell me who all these people were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bono Colliano or whatever. (laughs) And he did, and he was absolutely delighted to do it. And, you know... Smash Hits was was always in favour of that kind of thing because it broadened
2: people's minds. Yeah. Slightly worryingly, you did spend a period as a, sort of the police's Boswell. I did. <laughs> Somebody had to do that. <laughs>
3: so,
1: yeah, Mark Allen did the jam, and I, right. I, I
3: got I got the
1: police. <laughs> yeah, and I I was only I was talking about it the other night, and I was talking in Sheffield at a literary festival, and I was recalling the time when I interviewed. Stuart Copeland, who at the time lived with Sonia Christina out yes, of Curved yes, yes. not far Curved from up. where we're sitting now, right. honestly, in quite a modest house, yeah. because they'd had all this success, and, yeah. you know, but the money hadn't come in yet. And as I was leaving, he said, I've just come back from Japan and I've just been given this, try it. And he handed me this this kind of box looked like a dictating machine and these unpromising little headphones with orange pads and put it on, put it on, and press the... And it, that was The Walkman. And it was... Uh, one of the first one. Pretty much, yeah, one of the first ones yeah. that came into the mm. UK. Yeah, yeah.
2: And you thought, this will change everything. And it mm. did. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, It really but, did. But, again, you recognized it changed everything. I would have probably put it on and thought, this is terrible. <laughs> and then been amazed as it took over the world. One of the pieces we're running is your review of Off The Wall... Michael Jackson's off the wall. But for sound. For, sounds, like, for sounds, sounds. Yeah. sound, yeah. A, 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 and it's just such a good review. Oh, that's very kind. Cool. Well, no, no, I you, never go back and read everything no, again. But... One is you describe him singing the way he dances, that you can actually kind of see him moving when you listen to it. But you get the album perfectly because it's half great. And the half good bit is the up-tempo stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Michael Jackson was always a poor balance. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And you always kind of really regretted that he had to kind of like chuck two or three of the things on his other especially duets of people like Paul McCartney. You know, Although but- you
0: do <laughs> aff- you, you do admit you're affected by She's Out of My Life. How about Do I? Which is fine. Right. <laughs> I think <Yeah>. that's okay. <laughs> um, but you are right on the money about that record. Right? So yeah, often, yeah. you know, whether it's guests who come in or just rise you know, they, they've really sort of got it wrong about an hour right. It's obviously Well, I'm brilliant. sure I've done that. Yeah. I've done
1: that I don't, because about, you've got to do it in a hurry. Yeah, yeah. But you are you know, so right about yeah. Off the Wall. Because you you've got to come well. to an
2: opinion. Yes.
1: And most of the time, you
2: yeah. don't have an opinion. But it absolutely stands up, that reveal. And I, I found it, proofread it, put up on the site. And it was like, yeah, this is absolutely it. This is Off the Wall, which is one of the great records, but one of the great imperfect records. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's almost yeah. the thing. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a perfect record. Yeah. Well, same with Thriller, really. Yeah. Which I think actually gets better with time.
3: After you. You can it. You let
0: so, so it sounds NME and then this incredible decade that you had where I suppose the peak moment was Live Aid oh, and God. Bob Geldof um, <laughs> using the F word liberally yeah. and, and you sort of encouraging
1: well no it wasn't particularly it, 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 you know which is now kind of uh, immortalized on on celluloid you know if it's still celluloid yes, it in, in the it's. bohemian rhapsody film which of course i'm the only person in the world i've not seen and, uh, <laughs> who no, plays you though? that an actor, oh, I, an actor on danny baker's show on five live at the time one of my books came out and danny had the guy who was the actor on the phone, <laughs> talking. While you're talking sitting, yeah, talking about you know <laughs> what he'd been asked to impersonate, and it was a completely innocent thing, you know. And I've never seen it since. I have to get Mark Allen to go and check it because occasionally people try and tell me what it said, and I said. I don't have no memory of that at all. Mark goes and checks it and says, you're quite right, these people are making up. So I've been told by cab drivers all over the world that what Bob Geldof said was, give us your fucking money. And he never did at all. No. You know? What did he actually he say? He says, fuck the address. Fuck the address. Is the only F? Uh, there may be another one later. I don't think it was <laughs> when, I, when I was doing it. But, because basically, the boring explanation is yeah. the BBC in those days, they didn't want to be seen to be doing a, a kind of charity, uh, you know, what do you call it? A fundraising thing, right? And so the the ways that you could communicate were you could write in, you could send your postal order or your cheque, you could go to a post office, or you could use the phone lines. Yeah. And I had to say these, these instructions in that order because that was the order the captions came up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this, don't forget, this is in the, in the stone age of television. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. they couldn't <laughs> do these things that they could do now and said, okay, Bob, well, let's just go to the address. And he went, fuck the address. And that's, yeah. You know, and I just sat there thinking. I hope my mother's not, <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, she was, um, and you know, it was it was just. I mean. You know, the, the only thing I remember about Live Aid was, was how hot it was.
2: Mm.
1: It was an incredibly hot day. And I still believe that that's the reason people remember it with such affection. Mm. Mm-hmm. Had it rained, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> yeah. the yeah, pictures yeah. would not have been as good. It mm, yeah, would yeah. not have gone on BBC One. It yeah. would not be remembered yeah. in the, the way they were. I'll tell you, it's a similar case, sorry, to go now to it laterally. I did, did an interview with Paul McCartney a few weeks ago for uh, about Abbey Road for Radio Times. And, of course, he he made a very good point. Talk about the cover of Abbey Road. You know, six pictures, Mm -hmm. three times across the road. You know, they'd thought about doing it. It had been sketched out. Yeah. He says, the thing that makes the difference is the weather's so good. Yeah. 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 yeah, and it's well, we, yeah. absolutely yeah. yeah. true. Two weeks yeah. ago,
0: David, we tried to recreate it in a rather lazy fashion. <laughs> <laughs> the it, ever crossing outside that you crossed about forty-five minutes ago, and unfortunately, it wasn't oh, a very just nice there. step. Yeah, yeah. Matt and I played John.
2: Right. Yeah, I was... You were Paul. Yeah, No, I was Ringo. No, you were Ringo. a pr- Star as someone. <laughs> yes. <like
0: this>. Jasper <laughs> over here was <laughs> Paul, and, and I was in double denim as George. George. But uh, it wasn't a lovely day, and it wasn't Abbey Road. And we looked, someone, and,
2: and we looked yeah. nothing like
0: the...
1: <laughs> it, it, it was the weakest Flimsiest sorts of issues. I mean, just to continue on this tangent for a moment, because (laughs) you can never talk about the cover of Abbey Road too much, in my Mm. experience. Okay. I went to see Mark Lewison's run through of his fantastic Hornsey Road, Abbey Road you know, presentation. And and it was way too long, uh, but it was brilliant. Mm. And he was looking to cut it. And he said, Any suggestions for what to cut? I said, Mark, if you cut one thing, cut all the pastiches of Abbey Road, because they're an embarrassment. Mm. There is not one of them that looks good.
2: Yeah. Like ours.
1: Well <laughs> <laughs> take anybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been done millions yeah. of times. And all he does is yeah. point out the perfection of the original. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well I'm
2: sorry I raised it. The- <laughs> it's now. You, just, um, you you and Mark also presented the old Grey Whistle test for quite mm. a stretch. Sadly, the one time I played the old Grey test playing keyboards for Micro Disney, he wasn't there. <laughs> hey, and, and he was our sub- guest. And it was substituted by uh, Simon Bates. And Simon? I, I know. Bates but for some standing e- in for you. some extraordinary reason. And we were walking down one of those long curving corridors in the television centre, and he was walking ahead of us, backwards, apologising for being on the show. It was just the strangest encounter. Well, anyway. You know, I'm
1: amazed. <laughs> I'll tell you a word for it, that because people, I get emails from people all the time saying, I'm just watching you interview whoever, yeah. Kate Bush or... Mm-hmm. I go, didn't do it. <laughs> not me <laughs> you yeah. have a meta whatever and then they sent me a link and then sure enough sure enough you know, that...
2: and it was you did you enjoy doing the whistle no terrified
1: really mm. it was live mostly where yeah. yeah you know and we used to just pace behind the curtains before it went live Mark and I looking at each other and saying if somebody said to you right now you could go home would you go home sure <laughs> oh yes
0: <laughs> it, is. Yeah, it was it's terrifying it was okay. absolutely
1: yeah. absolutely terrifying yeah. yes um but then again, you know, in retrospect, I'm kind of glad I did it. Yeah, you know, because yeah. you, you you get a lot of mileage out like, <laughs> You, you know, do. I, I do that. You know, when I do speaking things, there's always somebody says, oh, you yes. know, whistle test or whatever. Yes. And I always make it part of my CV. I say, you know, we're sworn out by Bob Geldof in front of the largest television in audience in in on history. earth. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and so
0: there's always a story to tell. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you and Mark are, a, a great double act, and you're still
2: <laughs> and and closest
0: of friends. I used to do the word podcast.
2: We're very close friends. Yeah, right? and
0: that, that, that's What's something a, really a lovely about it.
2: sustained that? professional and personal friendship over that sort of period mm. of time? It's like well, a 40 unique, full stop. You know, I mean, it's a, it's incredibly rare. It's, it's great. I suppose so. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I don't know why it is. You know, we don't occupy that world at all, I suppose. You know, that that kind of helps. Hmm. You know, we're both married to women who couldn't have less interest in what we do. I think that helps, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yes, I don't think my wife's ever listened to our know. podcast. No, no. <laughs> no. I tried to stop her doing it. But actually, one of the things I was thinking, the other week was we had Ian Penman in as a guest, and then he was your guest yeah, on yeah. the Word podcast. Sorry, it's getting a bit incestuous mm. yes. here. But actually, what was rather nice was that once upon a time, there were all these sorts of factions, weren't there, in the world of rock journey and music journalism. And, you know, if you'd been doing a podcast in the 80s, I don't think you'd have had Ian Penman, but we're all sorts of friends now, aren't we? Which is rather sweet. I
1: suppose so, yeah. Hostilities, the <laughs> Hostilities are over. Aren't well, because,
0: <laughs> I mean, my understanding was, and you may correct this, so feel free, that when you and Mark launched Q... The sort of brief really was so anything, that isn't like, something like anything that isn't like Paul Morley and Ian Penman is probably acceptable. It was funny.
1: That was the first thing Ian said when I was talking to him yeah, the it probably other was. week. Yeah. And because he was really rather pleased with this. Yes, you know? of
3: course. And Great I, I don't fun.
1: remember it, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it might have been said at some point. I imagine point, it probably was. You know, because he was about telling stories. Yes. It wasn't particularly about your opinion. No. And the uh, perpendicular and so, pronoun. Was and so, so you know, upon. the NME was a kind of weekly unfolding yeah, yeah. stream of opinion, and yeah, that's that was, fine. But yeah. Q like was set out to be something different. Yeah, I mean, you I know, he, I never yeah. knew Ian at all. I mean, I, I've only met Ian, and I have I've been out a relationship particularly at all. But I met him at Danny Baker's house. It was the first time I've met him, and this is you know, it's only a few years ago. I think it was the first time I've met him, and he's one of those people that I become mates through social media. Yeah. And that's a good thing, you know yeah. what I mean? Because yes. I think he's, he's a fabulous writer, and I think he's really original. Yeah. yeah. He's and become... I think he writes about yeah.
2: music yeah. in a way that most people don't. Yeah. Don't. I mean, he's become a great writer. I mean, I struggle them back... I mean, my idea of hell is proofreading a 3,000-word interview with Green from Scritty Politics yeah. in 1979, yeah. Yeah. because I won't understand a word they're talking about. No, no, no. But stuff he writes for, like, London Review books these days is just fabulous yeah. writing. Yeah. It's mm. so good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think we talked about it already on the podcast. Well I so. think we probably have, so i probably be cut out anyway <laughs> <laughs> by the ruthless podcast assassin over there. Well, <laughs>
0: so so I mean you've launched many magazines. The word, which I'm looking at issues of the word up there, which was there was some wonderful writing in that, including the last of the three pieces that were featuring by you, a lovely profile of Emmy Lou Harris that you did in twenty oh three and you went to New York. Mm-hmm. You're gonna say, No, I didn't I no, did I didn't, I deny it. <laughs> I didn't. Never interviewed Emily Lou <laughs> Harris <laughs> But it's just a nice piece about about her, and there's a lovely moment where you're in her suite at the Ritz-Carlton, and her publicist brings in a bunch of pictures of her from the '70s, you know, like those elite hotel portraits. And you describe her looking through them. (laughs) Oh my, she says to herself as she leafs through the images of her 25-year-old self. Will you look at me?
2: (laughs) You know what? I think she's better looking now. Massive grey hair. I think she she's always saying. been good looking. Yeah, I don't think she's ever gone through a period where she wasn't. good looking. <laughs> no, no. And I don't think she's
1: all saying. I think she's remarkable. I don't think she's ever made a bad record. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You bar, describe her. Yeah. you were
0: talking earlier about can can we say this sort of thing anymore? You describe her as long stemmed and delicate. Can you say that now? You <laughs> I can't say anything. You can't say anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> gone I mad. Do, I, oh God. Uh, <laughs> well. Do you know, I, 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 just, I plucked that phrase out. She's
1: beautiful. She's I mean, a beautiful yeah. again, like, she's even not an And also, she's a professional entertainer. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and beauty, I'm sorry, it's part of the deal. It, it is. It can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Absolutely, yeah, But yeah. it's
2: part of the deal. Yeah, yeah. And I, I will not have people denying yeah. it. It's so, and, and that, would, I'd say, applies to men as well as women. Of course it does. But then you see Ed Sheeran, you wonder, sort of, like, Something went wrong with the sort of the algorithm. Yeah, <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. David, let's talk about your books. Um, <laughs> Sorry. the latest yeah. in which I'm holding in my hand.
0: So, so 1971, never a dull moment, kind of, you know, kicks off this amazing run of books that that, that you've written. I mean, your output is is extraordinary. <laughs> uh, already, I don't know how you do it and everything else that you do let's talk about the new book which is a rock and roll a level it's questions and answers very hard it says here uh You've got one, right? I yeah. think I got one, right? Should we sort of randomly no, <laughs> throw one at me. let me just pluck one God. out. here. This is from the Oh no, I'm not going to go for the mathematics section. So. That's at least, at least pick <laughs> so one. It is organised into Home subject Home economics? Uh, <laughs> all right. Okay.
1: Um, it's organised according to subject categories like a like a kind of an example. Yeah. All right, Mark. <clears throat>
0: Which colour sweets had to be removed from the bowls of m and oh. provided in Van Halen's God. dressing
2: room? Now, that's of a this is, I know this. It's a legitimate that, okay. question. Now, that is a completely <laughs> legitimate it's question. Isn't it? Though we found, you, we think you I got one wrong. Yeah, know think Yeah, we found, think we got, you got one wrong. Oh. The mullet.
0: Oh, yes, we oh, did. Oh, oh we mean the,
2: this is the, the guy from the Beastie Boys? so yes.
0: Yes, what? we're not going to be pedantic here, but, but we thought that... But that first de- of all, what
1: colour of m
2: <laughs> was excluded? Br- brown? brown? Brown, that is absolutely uh, correct. That's absolutely right. <laughs> so, legitimate question. Yeah, You've don't go g- too g- right. a- Absolutely. No, we think the mullet was already a term in circulation before... Beasties, it, it, I know what to... you mean. I know what you mean.
1: I don't. I don't know. I haven't got the book in front of me. I think I've tried to pick my words very carefully. <laughs> so, you know, I think. I think you can split hairs. Add information. Yeah, my, but you it, see, you are talking put. to
0: the world authority on not, the mullet. I oh. wrote a book. On really, mullet. Oh,
1: god! So <laughs>
0: I'm <laughs> afraid, you know, it's just incontrovertible. But I think. I think. Say. So
1: it's. It's. Who is it? One member of the Beastie Boys popularized the expression mullet. Yeah via yes. a feature in, in Grand Royal magazine. Grand yeah. yeah. Royal it Yeah, and yeah. the,
0: the, it was the greatest thing that had been written yeah. about the right, right. hairstyle at that yeah. point. Yeah. I'm just going to quote from your intro to the rock and roll A-level. So the book that you hold in your hands is dedicated to the proposition that the things pop music touches on are every bit as interesting as the music itself. And then you say, if you're looking for more examples of that most debased currency rock trivia, look elsewhere. But then you say, I love trivia, or as I prefer to call it, detail. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what essentially, this stuff fascinates you and probably fascinates oh, us yeah. as well. The minutiae. Oh yeah. Um so so what I think you said you used to run a competition on GLR. BBC London. Yeah, GLR, the, Greater GLR London Radio. Involved, yeah. So that that that's where the idea was born. And so how did you what were your criteria for the questions? It's divided uh, into <laughs> and, Oh look, talking about oh. talking about there's some great pictures, oh. lovely picture of David um, Lee Roth's <laughs> chest, very hairy chest.
1: Uh, they they it was this started with the publisher. The publisher said something. The publisher said, "Why do you write a quiz books? Surely you can just store away a load of questions as you're working and note them down." Mm-hmm. That shows you what a what a kind of <laughs> naive view concept. they have of how these things are done. And I, thought, I, and I kind of was flattered. I thought, oh, "All right, okay." And then I set to work, and I thought, God, it's a major undertaking. Yeah, yeah. It took me absolutely yeah, yeah. ages. Because, you know, once I'd given myself the categories. But it's things like, OK, I'm interested in, and I think it's one of the questions in the book, Little feet sailing shoes, mm-hmm. the mm. cover of, yeah. is inspired by what painting? Yes. I oh. The swing. Right? Which uh, no, that's right. fabulous. I mean, I, I fabulous. I mean I'm was, sorry. And
2: you, know, it's, you can the go fr- further. <laughs> who,
1: was the, who was the famous spy who was the world authority on Fragman? That's more that, that. That's no Matahari.
2: Anthony Blunt. Anthony, Anthony Blunt. Oh, well, of of course, course it would be. He was an know
1: Isn't I think the swing might be in the Wallace collection. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the,
0: the, it's in. It's actually in the Frick Museum in New York. And I've but, seen but, it I'm with I'm, the naked you, eye, and but, I thought sailing ship. Yeah, yeah. No one else was going. mate. You
2: see, I absolutely love that.
1: that kind of connection
2: between? Isn't that by Neon Park? No, it's Ragnar. I'm always very taken, but I—I
1: I, I once heard Alan Bennett on the, on the on the TV was talking about how T. S. Eliot married the daughter of his local butcher. <laughs> <laughs> he said, and he said, <laughs> and that struck me as a fabulous, magical connection between high art and low art <laughs> yeah. and that's always fascinating yeah and i'm a bit yeah.
2: the same yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i love that kind yeah. of thing you know um, I, um, I, didn't, I didn't think a book like this is actually kind of the zeitgeist is that's perfect because like the pub quiz has become just a massive sort of thing people like these mm. sorts of things yeah. i mean for christmas i this will be appearing a lot of people's. and I'm, ha- I'm
1: hoping it's the kind of thing that you can't google the ends.
2: You, you know, like you can Google. You it. Try you try I thought you could Google you do. anything. I think these you, days. I mean, you know. pretty much can. Though, it has to be said, pub quizzes and so on, so forth. They don't let you look at your mobile. No, they certainly so, don't. That's yeah. all. Well,
0: look, hours of fun here. The rock and roll A level, a very hard pop quiz um, by David Hepworth, our special guest. It's lovely talking. I mean, we could talk about so much more. Stick around, as we always say. We're going to be we're going to be just just talking about anything and everything, as we always do. Briefly talk about Elbow. Well,
2: um, you, you I'm frankly
0: the only one who yes, can talk yes, about Elbow. Beefy I might look elbows. to Jasper at the back of the room and see if he can no, just say something, something th- about no, no he's, he's shaking. He's t- ruled t- himself <laughs> out as well. Well look, so just simply that Elbow have a new album out. I rather like Elbow. I know it's incredibly uncool to like Elbow. Um although I think everybody pretty much likes Guy Garvey well, as a um, chap as a man as a human being yeah. uh, he he is just a thoroughly decent dude I know in fact probably too decent too decent too decent yeah. because I think it's, it's become a pro- even in 2009 when this so there's a Dorian Linsky piece from Q that year and he's so this is 10 years ago Guy is saying to Dorian, I'm terrified of being cutesy, bumbling, sweet old teddy bear guy. I'm aware I'm not sharp and gothic and cool, but I'd like to think there's more than that. Isn't he lovely thing? And in a way, he has become this sort of yeah. hell fellow well met, this this guy who doesn't look like a rock star at all, who gets, you know, Thousands of people at Glastonbury I, singing along to Monday like this. I know women
2: who worship. Yeah, he he he's got a very very strong female following. I think because. He is actually a nice guy, and some women really quite like nice guys.
0: Well, you know. So,
2: I mean, I really <laughs> you like that Out Jasper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> nice guys
0: come first. <laughs> I really liked the first album a lot. I have to say, I haven't loved everything as much since then. But I thought "Asleep in the Back," which was 2001, I thought it was a really great, like Manchester album that drew on sort of things like "Spirit of Eden." Talk, talk. It had that. That those sort of sonics about it. And I just thought, and I interviewed them a couple of years after. I just really, really did like them as a band. It wasn't just him. It was a rare example of sitting down with five guys who'd actually been playing together for years already at that point, who just treated each other with affection and respect. And I I was just really... That's weird. I know. God, yeah, something wrong here. (laughs) I mean, but they're still together. I mean, still the same lineup, which says everything. And the piece that Dorian did, they're talking about how they go from being... These these perennial underdogs to national treasures. And it all really happened at Glastonbury mm-hmm. when everyone sung along to one day like this. And I think since then they're a band that can sell out the O2. And they are a sort of beloved institution now. I also just think he's a genuinely decent human being, a good a good role model. I heard en- him on the Romaniacs podcast the other day. I think with Dorian, funnily enough. Yeah, that's
2: enough of this good guy stuff, Barney. Well
1: <laughs> he's, he's got you stand-on a- interviewing groups to Well, having interviewed the sort of reunited version of
0: the Beach Boys with Mike Love sitting next to Brian Wilson...
1: When was that?
0: (laughs) That was probably about 12 years ago or something. When that album... What was it called? That song about God made songs on the radio or something. Oh okay. Anyway, Anyway, I mean I came into the I came into this recording studio and they were lined up in this sort of semicircle and it was just surreal to see Mike and Brian next to each other. So that was the most extreme example. It can be really hard work. It's terribly It can be incredibly mm. hard work. It's all, all their tension. How many times have you had to do
1: that, would you say? Uh, well, I've, I'm sure I've done it loads of times, but if I ever have it, a choice, yeah, don't do it. it. Don't do mm. it. No. Because you, <laughs> bands, they're like political parties. Yeah, yeah. They the yeah, 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 They don't tell the truth in front of each other. There's always
3: one member but sitting
1: there sulking. Or one of them does, and everything goes to well, hell. Yeah. Whatever. You know, yeah. the tension yeah, yeah. between bands. And fascinatingly, mm-hmm. yeah, this kind of social organization absolutely, yeah. they're unique anyway. Elba's new
0: album, Giants of All Sizes, is out this week. I believe it is quite sort of Brexit themed, according to what I heard of Guy on the Romaniacs podcast. So, I think safe to say that he is on, he's on our side. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. These ellipses, yes, ellipsies. Uh, these turbulent times. Yeah. <laughs> So that's everything that's free on RBP this week. Mark, tell us about the week's audio. Well,
2: it's it's, it's grim and hilarious simultaneously. Jim Sullivan on the phone to the, the, the recently deceased Ginger Baker. And dear old Jim, I mean, I know our emails back and forth between him and ourselves over the last couple of days. He said, you know, it was probably one of the most difficult experiences of his life. Yeah. Yeah. He rings up, you know. How uh, long ago was this? Uh, not long ago, 2015. Oh, right, okay. And Ginger's back in England, having lost his South African ranch. We all see. Most recent. yes, yeah, his most recent catastrophe. And he gets. He's on the phone, and Jim's kind of trying to draw him out, and he's just getting monosyllabic answers. What? Well, oh, I didn't say that. You yeah, know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just—it's just extraordinary. Because well, the
0: film Beware of Mr. Baker yeah. just come out, yeah. and of course, he's not doesn't come out <laughs> terribly really. So yeah. it's like there's a lot of things in that yeah. film. Like uh, you're, you're right, you yeah. know. I mean,
2: <laughs> well, I mean, listen. I mean, the first clip we will listen to is him talking about his relationship with his family. I mean, this is the, the funny clip. Later on, we're going to run the one bit where he actually strings about three sentences together when he's <laughs> talking about his heroin addiction. Um, it is the only coherent past the entire interview, really, isn't it? But, um, yeah, we'll listen to this bit where he talks about his, his relationship, his family.
3: Oh, well, I don't know what people say about me, do I? Well, I guess some of the things that, that were in the movie uh, about your personality, uh, you know, your relationship with your family, uh, etc., What about my relationship with my family? Well, it's suggested that that hasn't, you know, over the course of your various marriages and children, that hasn't been a very smooth ride, I guess. How do you mean? Well, in that uh, you've caused a fair amount of damage by... Doing what you've done from, you know, being with groupies to not paying attention to the kids at the t- certain times. Uh, not told you that. Well, again, I'm getting this from the move people in the movie, interviewed in the movie. Well, you was about Kofi. That would be one of them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take most of what Kofi says with a pinch of salt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right.
2: his son <laughs> <laughs> oh my! I mean by this point it was quite late in the interview Jim is saying things just to provoke a reaction mm. actually all that stuff about the groups and all he wants to get Ginger to just to say something I and mean, I think he finally figured the only way to do it was to be fairly provocative but I mean I, that is the interview is what <laughs> yeah you
1: know, I, I, I saw the film and I came away from the film Thinking, as I increasingly think nowadays, I'd love to make a film about the families of rock stars.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. All the collateral yeah. damage. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. In the wake of yeah. these people's drive for success. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, the world is full of people who yeah, yeah. had to yeah. live in the shadow.
0: Yeah. Um should we put Ginger Baker just in context for anyone who wonders exactly who we're talking about? <laughs> I mean, I yeah. mean, his death has been, you know, obituaries everywhere. I mean, he was, challenge me if this doesn't sound right, probably the first superstar drummer Absolutely. in rock. He kind of invented the idea of if there's guitar heroes, he was a drum, drum hero, yeah. wasn't he? The only one. And um, this was the original it was cream he came out of a jazz background had been playing with jack bruce they hooked up with eric clapton and formed sort of the first super group really mm-hmm. and they were loud and heavy and they did a lot of improvisation and they the, the marshall stacks you know it was two bass drums it was the invention of like heavy blues rock oh, yeah, with yeah. the most incredibly powerful drummer who may also have been the single most unpleasant man in the history of rock and roll. Oh <laughs>
1: that's funny. No, talk. Really I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It reminds me it reminds me of the faulty towers. No, I won't have that said. There's a place in London. <laughs> but he took but he, a, he wore that as a badge
2: yeah. of pride. I mean, it, it, he talks about the cream reunion. Unfortunately he doesn't talk about how it ended. And it ended the same way that his relationship with Jack Bruce first ended with the Graham Bond organisation when they had a fight on stage, and the Cream Union ended with them having a fight so on stage. Yeah. yeah, I he, saw him with the Graham Bond organisation. Did you? Did you? Now, lie did
1: say, me? Say, on tour in Wakefield. That's, oh my so god. god. Well, funny, I, 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 after movie. listening to Ginger, this
0: audio, I, I just thought i listened to Jack Bruce and who comes up as just, I mean, I don't think Jack Bruce was the nicest guy, but compared to Ginger Baker, sweetheart. his absolute sweetheart, and he says, basically, what happened was, Ginger pulled a knife from in, yeah. the, in the Grand Bond, yeah, it, it yeah. was an audition. He pulled his knife on me yeah. and told me I was fired from the group because I was too busy. I mean, pulled
2: I, a I, fucking I, knife. I, 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 on I, he talks about how he feels he's respected by the great jazz drums because he did work with a lot of these yeah. people. I assume, in their part, mostly for money yes. because uh, because I've got this Alvin Jones quote from 1970 as we're talking to Life Magazine, and he's asked about rock drums. He Says Keith Moon, he's a drummer. Everything in the band does goes through him. Ginger Baker, nothing happening. Cat's got delusions of grandeur with no grounds. Oh, really? Because <laughs> they had a famous drum battle at the Lyceum, didn't they? I think they did. Elvin
0: <laughs>
1: Jones and Ginger Baker. I think they did.
0: And what's strange about that also is that in this audio interview, Jim is talking about Elvin's being a
2: mate of Ginger's. Yeah, which you, I... Don't, I think Max it, Roach the same. Yeah, I don't think anyone's a mate of Ginger's. I mean, the one thing about the movie is the extraordinary isolation he seems to live in with that sort of Black, almost like Mail Order Bride, which was, you you know... And he's bullying his son on camera. But but also, I mean, I don't know
1: much about the reunion, but I I sort of got the impression it was a kind of pension top-up.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I think... And
1: Clapton doesn't need his pension topping up. Though apparently G-
2: Ginger in this interview claims that Clapton was the one who suggested it. OK, yeah, but my might is suggested out of... it as a benefit for the rest yeah. of them. I that, and that... I think this is a big
1: issue yeah, yeah. with yeah. bands who've been going for years. Yeah, yeah, That's why the E Street Band or whatever, they're always nervously hanging on. Are we going to get another tour? Because that makes a massive yeah. yes. difference yeah. to these yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. And there's usually one person who decides mm. whether it happens. Yeah. The same Clapton, thing
0: with Neil Young. Crazy horse. Of yeah, yeah. Know, they've sometimes spent years in the wilderness waiting for that call. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, that, that's, um, that's, that's, that's
2: all.
0: Do we? I mean, we sometimes talked about Ginger Baker. I mean, I do. I really think he's such a great drummer. I, I, I mean, you know, it's to, a to toss up between him, like John Bonham or Keith Moon or Mitch Mitchell, Mitch, Mitch Mitch, leave on how Mitch, Mitch. I mean, I I. For some, actually, I just think that Ginger, for the most part, is just really all about thunder and power. Yeah. Is he really
2: that great a drummer? Well, I, I, I find his contempt for other drummers kind of disqualify him being a great drummer, because if you're a really great drummer, you really li- like... Like what you're saying about Elvin Jones liking Keith Moon, completely different type of drummer in a completely different area, but understanding what Keith does for mm. The Who. Mm. Ginger makes a slagged off John Bonham over and over again. Now, John Bonham comes from a different tradition. John Bonham's out of Al Jackson. He's out of Memphis R&B yeah, yeah, drumming, yeah, yeah. yeah? And so he's doing a different job, you know. But he had feel that I
0: don't think gone. Ginger Baker has ever
1: had, Not either, them, I'm afraid. Like, in his defence, mm. I like Disraeli Gears.
2: Well, the it's lifestyle.
1: A re- no, Disraeli uh, Gears. Now the studio yeah, album, Disraeli yeah. Gears, which they made bludgeonly in a day, I yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And I, I like his sound. I think it's sunshine of your love, well, they were looking for a way to do it, and Armatacum was in the studio, and he said, "Do it like Apache by the Shadows." Right, and so if you listen to it, okay. he's playing yeah. Apache by the Shadows yeah, yeah, that's, that's, all the way through. Well, that. and yeah. I, I do like that because you know they're quite economical songs, mm. those. Yeah, it's a great. The weird thing I was, I was I said this on social media the other day after he died is that people forget is that we used to dance to Cream. And if you listen to Israeli Gears, it's full of snappy tunes that you can dance to. Yeah. Mm. And so, in that sense, they were Ginger's group, like the Stones mm. and Charlie's group. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. what happens yeah. with posterity? You know, it always takes yeah. over. It always becomes about the songwriters. Well, Jack Bruce said
0: it was Ginger's group, in a sense, yeah. when they when they first formed yeah. One of the most dismaying things in the audio is when Jim asks him about, you know, Air Force and about working with Fela Kuti, mm. and you know, this really interesting thing he did. He went to Nigeria. Oh, yeah. You'd think that would produce, I mean,
1: he just, there's a long silence and he just goes, pause.
0: I mean, really, can you not do any better than that? Do you, do you not that?
1: think it's possible? It's the kind of person who was actually appallingly shy. And therefore, the only yeah. way he could present himself was by being unpleasant really obnoxious. and terse. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. he, he couldn't maybe. bring himself to show any weakness, any yeah, yeah. vulnerability right. of mm. any kind, you know. And maybe
2: that sort of keys in with his heroin addiction and so on mm. and so forth, so that, you know, Heron is a way of actually kind of shielding himself off from the world in a way. It's, yeah, it's may, may, and we'll hear a bit more about that. And at the end, end, and at the end we will hear a bit more about that. Oh, let's go on to yeah. what's going into the library. Dawn James interviews The Who for Rave in 1966. Dawn James is one of our favourite writers. Oh, I used, to, I used to buy Rave in 96. Yeah, well, I don't look old enough. And... <laughs> We, we, we got him as a guest in the podcast. A very few, influential a few, magazine. Few months yeah. back. It's a fantastic magazine. Mm. And also it had longer interviews with artists than anything else. You never got interviews that long in the NME or Melody Maker. Well, Melody Maker, you occasionally get your older uh, one in the mid-60s. But, proper, but, profiles. But proper profiles. Proper yeah. profiles. She, she, she gets to meet the Who and she takes an instant dislike to them, you know, partly because they're, they're being really bullshy, they're sort of in their full aggression mode, you know. Pete Townsend answers most of the questions, and he says th- things like, drugs don't harm you, I know, I take them. I'm not saying I use opium or heroin, but hashish is harmless and everyone takes it. Now, to have that printed in a pop magazine in 1966... Yeah, it's surprising, isn't is it? really quite something. Yeah. She then writes a paragraph saying, well, I don't take it, I don't you know? Were all these things illegal at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, carries on like this, you must get your kicks where you find them. Everyone needs kicks. We get some of ours through our work. But this is a real case of the interviewees and the interviewer really not seeing eye to eye on anything. Mm-hmm. But what, one reason why I like Dawn James is she gets that into the piece in mm-hmm. a way that most journalists in those and days... And most male would, journalists wouldn't, wouldn't have. have wouldn't no, have. no. I mean, well, not entirely true, because Keith Oltham is very good at writing, getting stuff in between lines, like the time he interviewed Cream, going back to Detroit, and they were all on acid, and they were up primarily... And he doesn't say they are on acid, but you read the piece... You know, it's that's exactly what he's yeah. saying. Yeah. Uh, and also, anyone interviewing Van Morrison when he was with them will allude to the fact that they're some of the most unpleasant people they've ever met in their lives as working Could, Can you, can
0: you what, imagine that that? Apply to the whole group? <laughs> can you imagine having a drink with Ginger Baker and Van Morrison um, and, and Lou Reed? Red
2: hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on to 68, LA Times. So, I occasionally find, you know, one of my jobs is to look online to find pieces yeah. in various newspaper libraries, newspapers.com and so on. And, I found, and Tom Nolan's one of our favourite writers, writing for Rolling Stone and people like that in, in, in the late 60s. And he's writing this piece about what he calls the company freaks, who were the new generation of record company executives, um, who... who would, had uh, hair below their collar. A, a, house hippies. House hippies, <laughs> house house, exactly. And this is February 68, this piece. So um, this is a generation of guys, including Andy Wickham, oh, yeah. an Englishman who yeah. was uh, part of that sort of scene. And what's interesting is that Barney and I were talking about this afterwards, and Barney was saying to me that how right-wing Andy we can had become.
0: That was that's my understanding.
2: Yeah. And, and what's interesting is his loathing of what he was doing was starting to come through even then. He says a lot of this comes from the way the music is treated. It's like a supermarket. So many pounds of this meat cost so much. The price of the meats fluctuates. The Grateful Dead before Monterey were worth so much. After Monterey, were worth so much more. Like meat in a supermarket. This is a man who's really <laughs> rapidly falling out of love with the music business. He really
0: did. Fascinating man, yeah. actually. Because it's, I think it's really interesting that that stable of, like, Warner Reprise mm-hmm. artists that started with Joni and that they put together then that became so influential. Um, he was really responsible. He signed Joni. This this Brit.
1: Really? Brit yeah. in
0: L.A., who then who then sort of really took against the counterculture. And at a certain point, I think he moved to Nashville because country music was the only music that he liked. Because oh, it, 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 it wasn't like <laughs> wasn't hippie long hair yeah, music. Yeah. Very, very strange.
2: Yeah. This is a really great piece. Yeah. It's long. It's about almost 4,000 words. And it's, I, I, I don't know if, I if you'd read it when you were doing Waiting for the Sun or all your cooking. I, I read, read it was. two or
0: three Nolan yeah. pieces and I did interview um, Tom.
2: It, it's, it's probably the first time anyone outside of the industry itself came aware of this notion of the house hippie, the company freak. Mm. And how straight-laced the music business was, especially in Los Angeles at that time. There was a lot of people in suits. We're talking about Joe Smith with his blazer yeah. going yeah, down yeah, to see yeah, The definitely. Great Dead and Fillmore West and being told not to drink any water or be offered any drinks, because it will be spiked. You yeah. know? He's there with his wife in Crimpling. You know? yeah, yeah. So these people were quite important. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were bringing people in who knew how to talk to the FM, the new, again, they, he talks to an FM station guy, the new FM stations, how to talk to all of these sorts of, Subsections yeah. and get things together. It's a great piece. Billy Paul, interviewed by Robin Katz for Disc in 73. Robin Katz? I know. used to
1: write for smash Yeah, absolutely. Yes.
2: Big fan of Robin Katz. She actually kind of got him, She sent us a whole lot of her clippings and all that. Where um, is she now? She's in, back she's in America. States, yeah, but... she's back, back in America. Jersey? She was a really good writer about black mm. music. And... A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about her interview with Bill Withers, which is just electrifyingly good. Mm. And this is good too. I mean, Billy Paul's not Bill Withers; he's you know hasn't got. He says, "Me and Mrs. Jones is a song that could relate to anybody." This is the age that it's happening in. Marriage is a dying thing. Mm. He says the situation's been going on all this time. I think everyone has a Mrs. or Mr. Jones sometimes, you know. So that's good stuff. Speak for yourself, Billy. <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> I suspect he was
0: me
3: and Mrs Jones we
2: got a thing on. John Swenson, Rolling Stone in, in July 77 So this had been a month before they came to that not very good English tour, Little Feet, when Little Feet came to... and The well, second about, tour uh, Yes, yeah. and it's all about Lowell's sort of gradual retreat from the band. And so the opening paragraph, yeah, the opening paragraph, more or less, is, when we really get going, we can play music as complex as Weather Report or Herbie Hancock, Little Feet pianist Bill Payne contends (laughs) after a set of steaming rock funk at Washington's Warner (laughs) Theatre. Except we're coming from a rock basis instead of jazz. This isn't necessarily an overstatement, since Payne co-wrote Little Feet's dazzling fusion instrumental "A Ad- at Ad- the Dog Races yeah. on their latest album, Time Loves a Hero. <laughs> the track is especially meaningful. It clearly indicates the musical direction most of Little Feet favour, and it's the only tune in which lead singer-guitarist Lowell George doesn't play during the live shows. <laughs> and the rest of the article goes on to sort of say, but it's all going to be great and Lowell will come back and all that sort of stuff, but this is basically... The chasm is appearing here. Yeah. Well, I met Lowell George briefly. Did and, you? Uh, wow. Uh,
1: the first. So when's the first tour? Seventy-five.
2: Seventy-five. 75
1: yeah. Okay. Well, so Warner Brothers Music Show, and they had. You were there. <laughs> you were at the Rainbow. I was at the Rainbow. As I was. And, I um, didn't see you. Had, <laughs> right. <laughs> and they had a reception to launch the tour mm-hmm. at the American Embassy in Grosvenor Square. That's right. And, and, you were invited. Uh, and I went along, and we talked to Bill Payne. who was very. Nice, and then Lil George lurched up, and he remains the most out to lunch individual I've ever been in the company of in my life. That's wow, that's you know, I think he was jet lag, tiredness, drugs, god knows what, you know.
2: But that show was just extraordinary uh, that Sunday afternoon. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) it was. I'm so fed up. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't get to see it. I guess what we're saying here is all three of us love Little Feet. To, uh, oh, absolutely. You know, Little,
1: yeah, yeah well, Little Feet are the only group I've got loads of bootlegs by. <laughs> they used to yeah. buy bootlegs at literally a shop that was a hole in the wall just off <laughs> Carnaby Street. And, you know, they used to pay a fortune for this. Yeah, things. I mean, Lex- yeah. Lycanthropes, is fantastic. fantastic yeah. Well, of course, nowadays, you can hear them all digitally. That's yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they
0: yeah, sound perfect. Uh, well, wait, wait, this is wait, this is a coming full circle back to Tragonal, aren't we?
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Never
3: <laughs> part of <Tragonal>. um, <laughs> Never <laughs> part of <Tragonal. laughs>
2: Moving to 1981, this is Richard Cromeland on the phone to Jerry Dammers, The Specials. Ghost Town's just come out as a single in America. And Jerry Dammers sound's really low, you know. And actually, the band were already were splintering in 81, weren't they? They were about to sort of morph into the Special A.K.A. It was not a happy camp it was not by happy the time camp. Ghost Town came okay. out. So, Richard Cromeland says, Despite its alluring music, Ghost Town is one of the most downbeat records ever to go to number one. It's not a very hopeful piece of music. And Dammer says... Well, as I say, it was written in a space of complete depression. On a more personal level, it was about disillusionment with rock and roll and the alienation and paranoia that the success, in inverted brings. With all the demands people make on you, they become very frightening, ghost-like figures. I don't want to make a big issue of this, but success has brought a lot of unhappiness. Oh, sorry, I'm going from one crumbling Spiral. rock musician. Yeah, yeah. I know. Like, <laughs> almost morbid <laughs> interest. Yes, I mean, unraveling. See, beloved rock
1: groups and successful groups are happier than
2: successful groups. Oh, I don't know about that.
1: No, I think there may be something in that because they're all. Searching for the same objective. Mm. That's true. As soon as they get successful, yeah. they always feel that somebody's got the
0: credit. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That they, they should
0: uh, uh, What's the next unhappy band?
2: <laughs> <laughs> actually this is, <laughs> this is Fred Shareuse interviewing the three main protagonists of Desperately Seeking Susan, right. which is Madonna Rosanna Arquette and Susan Seidelman, director. the director. And it's i am going to quotes from it, but it's a really interesting piece, really well worth reading. Mm. And what comes out of it is actually Susan Seidelman's great. She's a Bright, Madonna's great. Madonna knows even then, and and it's 1985. It's quite early in her career. You know, she is someone who's she can be a little bit touchy. And Rosanna Arquette is unbearable. Oh really? She's a complete space cadet, eating her vitamin pills and sort of talking, (laughs) spouting New Age bills by the yard. Yeah. They're all talking about a sort of, you get the feeling slightly fake female solidarity that these three protagonists had about the making of the movie and so on and so forth. Rosanna Rockett clearly struggled with Susan Seidelman as a director. She's someone who wants to be stroked all the time right. on set, whilst, you know, she says, Well, I wasn't treated like that by Martin Scorsese, you know. Right. It's, it's sure. sort of stuff. Sure. Very briefly, Just Ice, interviewed by Sean O'Hagan for The Enemy in '89. Not his real name. And this man is just such a complete tosser. This town <laughs> is full of suckers who try and test you. I'm like this. You fuck with me, mother. I'm going to shoot you point blank. And I want to shoot him. Yeah, I love the way my thirty-eight sounds when it goes off and spits fire. I, I love guns. His album had a Stop the Violence sticker on the cover. An, an anonymous sleeping bag records employee says, When I just justice, I don't think Stop the Violence. I think Start the Violence. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's got on well with Ginger Baker. Uh, and the very last one
2: actually it leads to the audio interview we listened to a couple of weeks ago, or three weeks ago, which is Tony Shum's interview with Robbie Robertson about his very early days with the Hawks, with Ronnie Hawkins, and so on. And what, what Tony Shum's done is take these yards of recordings that he's done and basically just transcribe them. So it's not an interview, it's in Robbie's voice. And he's been very faithful to what Robbie said because one of the clips that we played in the blast, that broadcast, is reproduced pretty much word for word. One thing about that is that he was a good storyteller, mm-hmm. Robbie Robertson. You can wind him up and let him go, and he'll, he'll tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And he said one thing he said is really interesting, especially in the light of the fact that they were absolutely on the outs at this time, he says the majority of the stuff that I was really connected to came from the South, and Leaven kind of represented that to me. Mm-hmm that Robbie, he talks in this interview about getting that train down that, that that Ronnie Hawkins has said, you know, come on down. So I got this train from Canada all the way down to Arkansas. This is like a three-day train journey. Mm. And seeing the landscape changing and, and becoming really excited, mm. you know, mm. and just suddenly he'd feel this different quality of heat that he'd never felt before, mm. you know. And then going down there... And there's all this band of uh, they're all Arkansas boys at that point with their arms folded, looking at this kid from Canada. You know, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> he was the one with the vision, wasn't he? Mm. he well, was uh, but I mean, uh, with with Ronnie Hawkins, he was also he was just an electrifyingly good lead guitar player. It, joining a band which had already had two—that's mm. the thing. Mm. You know, already had two. It's a very interesting interview. Yeah. It's I mean it's worth pointing out this all happening for Robbie Robertson this
0: month because not only does his solo album Cinematic come out um it be I'm sure his previous sure solo albums I, I have it's no solo doubt. It's spelled S I N E But just just more importantly well, let's More importantly, the Scorsese directed band documentary Once Were Brothers is now out. I believe it's now Last on Netflix oh, well, I, I was, was looking for it last I couldn't find right. it so maybe so, it's today it so,
1: might be today so is, is it the case now you're the expert on the band party an expert no I'd say probably yeah, the you're the expert in the room <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and you'll do for me Barney. <laughs> it,
2: it's a really
1: it is what's happening with Robbie Robertson right now a kind of example of a very interesting syndrome that I think Paul McCartney has also it's happened to Paul mm. McCartney is that when two or more members of your band die... You, you own the story. You get to be the band.
0: You own the narrative. Mm. Really. You
1: own the narrative. Yeah. In yeah. the nicest possible way. I'm not saying no. anything unkind at all. No. But you can go out and say, this is what happened, and nobody's going to disagree with <laughs> you. Mm. No, and and, and you know, as we've seen in Ginger Baker, you know, even when people were still alive, they were, they were arguing about absolutely everything that happened Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean, personalities before principles and all that. I do think it's... I mean, it's interesting, this very week, I've got into this kind of email exchange with a writer, whose name I won't mention, American writer, who seems to have kind of undertaken this mission to dispel the kind of consensus that sort of Levon was, was this sort of good old boy and Robbie oh, right, was yeah. a sort of scheming careerist, you know, and he depicts... Through some personal experiences with Levon, and Levon is a complete scumbag mm-hmm. whose word must not be believed at all, <laughs> and Robbie's got such an unfair rap. And I, I, look, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Well, it always In every band, yeah, yeah. the truth is yeah, yeah.
2: somewhere yeah. in I, the middle. I, I think there's various things. I felt, first of all, Robbie Robertson's songwriter only had so many songs in him, and I think that applies to a lot of songwriters. All so, songwriters. Saying. So, in a way, the last three or four years of the band has Slightly pointless anyway, yeah, yeah. because they really weren't making particularly good records. I mean, Northern Light, Southern Cross was a bit of a re, you know, return it was a good, to form. good album, but, but, but they'd produced all kinds of yeah. bilge before that. So the band really should have broken up anyway. And then he's done nothing interesting since Music he really, really hasn't.
0: That's your lot. That's my lot. I only want to just briefly mention before we wrap up, I think we should note the passing of Barry Masters, oh, the yeah, lead singer yeah. of Eddie and the Hot Rods. So Eddie and the Hot Rods were this—they were kind of the missing link between kind of pub One rock of and them, punk, uh, weren't the three they? three months,
1: they were the hippest group in Britain.
0: Right, For the three
2: really months. They really were. I, could, I saw them and I just thought, "This is I'd rather see Dr. Feelgood any day of the no, week. And they were, they were, they were kind of younger and sexy. They were younger and sexy, but musically... had a music nice
0: torso, didn't they? had a good really hot stuff for three yeah. months, honestly. Oh, honestly. There's, there's the Seriously? countervailing opinion, I see. I imagine this... Part of it a rather nice experience that Adam Sweeting, who has written the Guardian obituary for Barry Masters, sent me a, a rather plaintive email, I think probably about a week ago, I'm desperately trying to find out something about Barry Masters' childhood and adolescence, I can't find anything, not even on Rock's Back Pages, he says, and I'm, I'm really sorry, I don't, I'm not sure we can help. And then the very next day, the lovely, wonderful Daryl Easley, who used to work at Universal um, sent me these liner notes that he had done for an Eddie and the Hot Rods compilation where Barry Masters talks all about his childhood and adolescence yeah, yeah, yeah. and what came yeah. before Eddie and the Hot Rods. I mean, I didn't think they were a great band, to be honest, but I get that at that point, no one knew about the Pistols or what was just around the corner. So it was... It was different from Supertramp. Should we just say that? Yeah,
1: but it's interesting. You talk about that with, with Robbie Robertson. You know, the, right. the, the truth about rock bands doesn't matter who they are. They have a very brief period of inspiration, mm-hmm. followed by a very long career. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And if you have a hit early on, you're married to each other for the rest of your life. That's
3: a yeah.
0: difficult marriage. It's a difficult marriage. Yeah. Yes, I mean we're like a rock, like a rock band here at Rockspat Pages. Well, I was thinking
2: about we? him, and yeah. Mark
1: yeah. Ellis. David, it's been such a pleasure
2: yeah. having you
0: here. It's and... been
1: fun being on your cupboard. Oh, bless you! Thank you so much. Come, <laughs> come back to our
0: cupboard any time. So, just to reiterate, David's book, The Rock and Roll A Level, a very hard pop quiz, is out this week, and all his other books are available, published by Bantam Press. All Bantam Press? Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: And all available in the usual places. So, go seek them. And I'm actually, I think, coming on your podcast in December, you are. Mark's invited the, me to the, talk the, about Tom Waits. We're talking, Tom Waits' we'll we'll 70th then.
1: birthday.
0: <laughs> that's right. I shall, I shall look forward to seeing you again then, Cheers. David. And that's it from us. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Thanks for joining us. We're
2: going to go out with a last clip from Ginger Baker, talking about heroin. We'll see you next
0: week. (laughs) Bye.
3: How do you think, looking back on it now, about what it did and and what it did to you? I don't really think about it. (laughs) Do you think it's almost—is it kind of an inevitable musician's curse? I mean, I know Phil introduced you to it. No, you didn't. He did not. No. Oh, okay. Uh, that's what the movie suggested. How did well, you? The movie might suggest it, but the movie's fucking wrong if it does that. Okay. How All did? Right. How did you? I, I wrote a book where the story is in it. Okay, I haven't read the book, I have to admit. But so how, how, how did you get introduced to it then? Well, it's a guy called Dickie DeVere, another a good drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was using smack before I met Phil. Ah, uh, okay. And when Phil found out, he burst into tears. Because he... He was always warning me about, don't do it, you know. And I was already doing it. Right. is Do Right. Right.
2: That was Ginger Baker in conversation with Jim Sullivan in 2015, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Hepworth. His new book, The Rock and Roll A-Level, is out on October 17th and published by Bantam Press. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Muris and Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.